This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS is committed to sustainability. It's good for the planet, business, and communities. Learn more about AWS sustainability goals at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from balmy northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is off on assignment this week. On this week's edition, some advice from an early career sustainability professional. What's with our obsession over greenwashing? Plus, are you ready for management in the new era of political capitalism? It's all up for debate this week on GreenBiz 350. It's January 20th, 2023. I almost said 2022. Bad mistake. But welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host from a couple of rivers away in Brooklyn, New York, is Dylan Sigler, Lead for Corporate Sustainability at Green Biz. Hey, Dylan, did I pronounce your name right? <laughs> yes, you did. Thanks, Heather. And I'm delighted to be here. It is awesome to have you here. You are pretty darn busy. How many weeks do we have left? It's T minus what? To it's, Green Biz 23? You know, we're just over three weeks before the big event. And mm. uh, we're working furiously over here. I feel like we're we're the Santa's elves of sustainability event planning. <laughs> Santa's elves going to Scottsdale, Arizona. Quite a, a different uh, environment. But um, can you give us any hints about what we're going to see and hear and do while we're out there? Yes, absolutely. We've been jokingly calling this the what to expect when you're expecting a sustainability mm -hmm. event kind of talk. <laughs> um, you know, the thing that strikes me uh, as I've been as I've been planning this event moving toward February is that like the like the Walt Whitman um, quote from Song of Myself, I am large, I contain multitudes. Corporate sustainability has gotten really broad we have to contain multitudes. And as a result, the conference itself has become really broad. And mm -hmm. so one of the challenges has been to find ways to cover lots and lots of topics at exactly the right level of detail. Um, so we're going to be doing some deep dives into areas like, uh, like nature and biodiversity and um, some deep dives into things that are maybe a little bit um, more numbers oriented, like scope three emissions. And so um, so those two are big topics for sustainability practitioners right now, um, particularly as we move on the scope three side into the world of SEC regulations coming down the pike. And, and as we come out of the COP15 talks in Montreal that um, that really tried to come to some conclusions about global mm -hmm. biodiversity goals and how to get there. So, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot more 
across all of these broad aspects of sustainability. And sustainability now really needs to consider a lot of intersections. And so we're considering a huge amount of topics around justice, equity, diver diversity, and inclusion, and, um, and lots of different ways to encounter and approach those topics that might mm -hmm. be new to our audience. And so really excited about that. And then lastly, I will plug, we, um, and we'll get to this, I think, Heather, um, in our, our review of this week's news, there's a lot of talk about burnout. And um, so we're going to have not only some real discussions about solutions-oriented ways to approach burnout and um, for you and for your team, and um, but literally on site, we're going to have a full day of wellness programming, uh, including yoga and, um, and different um, mindfulness meditations and, and various ways for attendees to actually drop out for 20 minutes at a time and, um, and, and try and not get burned out on the conference itself. So um, <laughs> practicing, what, practicing what we preach. Yeah. I always have, I find that very challenging, uh, Myself, I, I was going through the program this week to try to figure out where I could go to breakouts. And I, you have made my job very difficult. I'm like, there are sessions where I'm like, oh my God, I could go to five of these sessions. <laughs> I really get a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I think that's going to be a common problem. And yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say it's a good problem to have. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. I, I just actually want also want to um, flag one other thing that you didn't mention that I'm particularly... I always love is the intergenerational aspect of the conference and the early career people that are there versus the people that have been been in it and they're the veterans the uh I guess I won't say they, they've been through the, they've got the battle scars I suppose um, I don't like military analogies but yeah it it kind of applies um anyway I just I, I think that's also a um, really important dialogue right now um as we move into the future in a future that I probably won't be seeing, um, or at least I won't be working in it. And uh, whereas these these people that are just joining the profession will be. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting those kinds of individuals at the conference as well. So uh, meanwhile, I think we're gonna um, go to the week in review and we're actually going to start with some perspective from, from one of those early career professionals. So let's get right down to it. So the first story I wanted to bring up is uh, building sustainability programs from the ground up. It is a piece from Lillian Liu, and she is with a company called Braze, or a software company. Um, and it's part of our higher learning, higher H-I-R-E learning column um, that really taps into the, the perspectives of earlier career professionals. We do have um, folks that are writing to that world as well, but I just appreciated her um, perspective on, hey, I just took this job. I was the first person at this company to be focused on this thing. And here's what I learned. Here's what, here's some of the things that I found, um, the challenges that I found, and I'm going to share them with you. Um, she's, she has like eight tips here, eight areas of things that she's bringing up. Um, and I have my opinions about the ones that I felt particularly resonated with me, but I'd like to go to you first for your perspective, Dylan. What, what stuck with you from this story? I loved Lillian's approach here. And 
I, I honestly feel like most of it is a pretty unimpeachable roadmap for how to get started <laughs> at, at a company like this that may not have, have really um, encountered some of these issues before. My favorite of her uh, sort of adages here is number three. So um, you need a business case, but it needs to be unique to your company. Um, I think that that is... Um, that's going to be key. And I think you could apply the, it's going to be unique to your company to really anything you do when you're launching a new sustainability initiative. If you're just applying general steps um, and, you know, going through the motions and not looking at what's core to your business, it's going to fall flat with your leadership and it's not going to succeed in the end. So I, that was, that was my favorite. Um, what mm -hmm. about you, Heather? Well, I, I, I love that one as well. I, this number eight, her, her adage here is your ability to prioritize and delegate will be put to the test. And this kind of, um, pertains to the one before, which is like, you have to do and lead. <laughs> you, you can't just you know, say, oh, you know, like, here's what we should do. And then like, wait for everyone else to do it. You're going to have to do. Um, and there will be lots of opinions on what should be done. And you're going to have to figure out where to prioritize. And this is can be so frustrating. I, um, It's a personal challenge for me. Like you, you want it, you see all these things that you could, you really are going to have to tap into the, that unique aspect of the strategy that you were just mentioning and decide, use that to decide where you can go first, what you should do first, um, what you can back burner a little bit, what maybe you don't want to tackle, but maybe you can convince another team to tackle. Maybe that's something, maybe something in the supply chain group, you know, maybe this, maybe you can sort of convince them that it's their challenge to deal with. But I, I that one really stuck with me. Um, it can be a lonely job, she writes. Um, and she has relied a lot on her external peer network, because that's also important, right? It's being able to vent out and up and whatever and, and, and share experiences. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I think obviously a big part of the green biz, uh, group value proposition across all of what we do in terms of the networks that, that we bring to the market and the conferences, like the one we were just talking about that mm -hmm. can be a place for the lonely individual practitioner to, um, not only like learn um, and get the subject matter expertise and make sure you're boned up on all those topics, but just, I mean, you really just want a support group at some point and um, this can be really hard work. Mm -hmm. So this takes us to our next piece again. And I picked all of these for you, Dylan. They're all related to the profession. Um, <laughs> and this one is by Joel McCower and it is his latest column about our favorite G word greenwashing <laughs> and the title is why we can't stop talking about greenwashing we're obsessed with it we talk about it all the time um do we do it i don't know maybe we do maybe we don't um but in all seriousness there's been a lot of um uh, press coverage of this topic lately partly because of the european union's stand on it and there's some uh, laws in um france and other places that are bringing to bear and i the the um, FTC is is uh, evaluating the the own our own rules here in the U.S. and there was a pl uh, Planet Tracker report out 
um, that that sort of was talking about the shades, six shades of greenwashing. At least there's not 50 shades of greenwashing, but there's six six shades of greenwashing: green crowding, green lighting, green shifting, green labeling, green rinsing, and green hushing. Anyway, so I mean, the point being that um, we're talking about it, and the question that Joel raises, which I think is a really legitimate one, is. Are we talking about it too much? <laughs> like, is it really as bad as as um, we're saying? Is, is it preventing? Is it is it paralyzing some action? So I'm curious about your. I'm very conflicted on this topic in general. Um, I, as a journalist, I get a lot of press releases and marketing communications that are clearly greenwashing, and I, you know, my antenna go up right away. But at the same time. I want companies to talk about what they're doing because if we don't talk about what you're doing and they're doing, we're not going to make progress. Um, so I'm just curious about what your take is on this this topic and and on Joel's take on it. I appreciated Joel's historical perspective on this issue. He yeah. he mentions that he first wrote about this in 2008, and honestly, he probably wrote about it before. That's just the first time it showed up on Greenbiz.com. Um, and so, and I, I also appreciate that Joel continues to ask questions throughout his piece. One answer that he that he brings seems to be that we need to be more intentional, more thoughtful, and put more resources behind the ways we're communicating sustainability in the marketplace. Um, and I think that that is really key. I think I'm seeing it starting to happen. I think more, there are more dedicated sustainability communications professionals than ever. We'll be hosting them at the, at the, uh, GreenViz comms summit, which will be adjacent to GreenViz 23 this year, not to once again, plug our event. Um, <laughs> but I think we're, we can question whether it was ever appropriate to have just any comms professional communicate about sustainability issues, just like any press release or product update. Um, but we are definitely no longer in a place where we can do that. This is not a business as usual, as usual topic. It does require a bit of specialization. And those specialists inside these companies and the, and the communications professionals that are service providers can really... Um, I think we're at a place where we can evolve the way we talk to the public and to, you know, both, you know, business to consumer and business to business communications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was out to dinner on Saturday with some friends, very well-read, well-informed friends. And one of them said, you know, but isn't net zero just all greenwashing? And I, I was surprised to hear that, that um, I think it's now something that is, the common assumption that anytime you read of a of a company making a sustainability announcement, it's somehow false or it's somehow exaggerated. And that's unfortunate because I think you're right, Heather. We we do want companies to be able to talk about what they're doing. And so um I I hope that we can start to have a, a more robust conversation about this. Yeah. We are very interested in in having that conversation at Greenpeace. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just say, I'm just going to quote his, his closing on this one, because I think it's, it's, it, it, it does point to my point of view, but to simply call greenwash on anything and everything is counterproductive, 
It's a lazy and uninspired criticism that doesn't really address the challenge. Companies wanting to be seen as part of the solution in a world that views them as anything but. But folks, we, knew we need companies to be part of the solution. And that's, that's where I'll come down on it. So burnout. <laughs> Burnout. I think, and as we were preparing for this, we talked about how uh, much we're like, overextended right now, you and me, and probably pretty much the entire GreenBiz team getting ready for the conference and um, all the exciting things we have going this year. So the last story I picked for this week is a great piece by Shauna Wadoski. Um, she popped up over the holidays to suggest this, um, this piece about burnout. It's called The Power of Nature to Keep Us Flowing lessons from the river on how to sustain the sustainability field. It's a great piece. Uh, she she had the opportunity to go on a journey um, in uh, Labyrinth Canyon along the Green River. So she was uh, kayaking um, with a group and, and doing some writing too. It was a, like a writer's group. There was a, even a poet. Um, trauma, in, they, were, they were led by trauma-informed guides, including John Riddell, who is seen as the accidental viral poet who, may, who some think of as the next Mary Oliver. And that is pretty, pretty serious praise. Uh, Mary, Ol yeah, pretty high praise. Um, but it's just, I read it and I thought, this is not the usual Green Biz story, but you know what? It really should be. <laughs> like, we need to think about this. We, we need to, as, prof I mean, even as a journalist, and I'm only covering this stuff, but I can't even imagine the, the strength of purpose, the um, resilience of the individuals that are in this field is mind boggling. And it, it's something you need to call on every day to, to make it through because this is a long-term slog and we have so many short-term challenges. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you thought about this story and also why it's part of the you, you mentioned a little bit, but why it's part of the program at, at, at the event. Burnout is on a lot of people's minds. And as we talked about at the top, we will cover it in a number of ways at GreenBiz 23. And this is really, I think, about how to become more resilient leaders, more mindful leaders, and how to recognize when you're putting undue burden on others, um, which is which is a really important part of leadership. And this really, you know, the idea is to, um, at the conference, give time for attendees to really consider the fact that as a practitioner in the climate space, you're looking at some really tough statistics. You're looking at some really tough odds around biodiversity loss. You're looking at injustice every day. Um, it's exhausting. And I think, yes, everyone is is kind of in a place at this point, always being on in the new remote workplace and never being away from your computer, sometimes not really having much of a reason to go outside at all. And I think it's just amplified for those who work in a in a field where we're maybe um, experiencing a little bit of existential dread mm -hmm. some of the time mm -hmm. on top mm -hmm. of just the, the everyday yeah. stuff that we're all dealing with. So um, I thought this was a really well-timed piece. And I loved hearing about Shauna's 
journey into this canyon. And so, you know, we're in an audio format at the moment, but I do recommend for listeners to actually go look at the pictures in this story, which are really um, inspiring um, folks sitting around a, a campfire, um, beautiful shot of a canoe in the river going through this canyon. So um, highly recommend looking at that. I I love the idea of doing an immersive nature experience and I also just wanted to put out there that I'm in favor also of small doses of nature. If you can't immerse for days in a canyon, Um, I find even, you know, I live in Brooklyn, New York. We've got a huge, beautiful park in the center of Brooklyn, even spending some time in the parts of Prospect Park that are away from the roads can be really cleansing. So um, it, it, yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, is there is are we doing the um, biodiversity hike this year? We will have a hike this year, so really excited okay. about that. Yeah, that'll be on the yeah. Tuesday morning of Green Business. Yeah, and that'll get sold out. No, sold out, registered out. I guess is the yeah immediately. So yeah. Anyway, well, thanks, Dylan, for that perspective. And I'm gonna go for a walk. I think a little bit later this afternoon. So thanks for the inspiration. I I do find it helps me. Thanks so much. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me, Heather. Business and politics are inseparable. That's the opening line of The New Political Capitalism, an exploration of how businesses and societies can thrive in a deeply politicized world. The author, Joe Zamet Lucia, has experience in both business and politics as a CEO, a marketer, and across the spectrum of research and development and many other roles. And he is the founder of Radix, a nonprofit public policy think tank in the UK. He joins GreenBiz 350 to chat about his book. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start by having you define political capitalism. <laughs> like, How is it different from the previous way that businesses treated politics? Sure. Um, so maybe we should start by defining politics. Mm. Um, because, you know, there's a tendency for people to turn their nose up every time somebody mentions the word politics because it's associated with the dysfunction of the political system and the the kind of less than edifying spectacle of of electoral politics. Um, But I define politics as the process by which we define what kind of society we want to live in. Uh, And that's done through the highly imperfect political systems that are around the world. But essentially, that's what politics is about. Mm -hmm. In a world where, you know, every citizen more or less wants something different and is arguing for something different and where every policy action has winners and losers, how do you find a collective way forward? That is the essence of politics. Now, capitalism, which I define very simply as the right to own private capital, has been around forever, but has taken different forms. You know, we've had mercantile capitalism, we had before that feudal capitalism, then industrial capitalism, then consumer capitalism, then the period in which we have been, and is just ending in my view, of financialized capitalism. And now, I think we're entering this 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 
period of what I call political capitalism. And the reason for that is that over the last, say, 30, 40 years, there wasn't really a huge amount of political debate. Um, everybody kind of accepted free markets, accepted you know, the neoliberal ideology, accepted the broad outlines of how our societies should be organized was really a matter of consensus and there was debate around the fringes. Main parties were finding difficulty distinguishing themselves from each other. Well, <clears throat> that's all been blown to smithereens now. And now we have really quite aggressive political debate on lots and lots of issues um, as we try to find a way forward. So when uh, politics was, if you like, a little bit dormant, or at least not the subject of such um, aggressive polarization, then business could just be left alone to get on with the business of making money. Now that we have you know, political debate about almost everything and quite aggressive political debate about almost everything, business cannot absolve itself from being part of that discussion because business has a huge impact on the sort of society in which we live. And therefore, all their actions have political content, you know, from how much they pay people to whether they shift their production overseas, all these things have political implications. And these are now more important, which is why we're moving into an era that I call political capitalism. And the mantra that business is apolitical and is only there to make money for its shareholders no longer holds. It's, 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 it's unsustainable. So where are we in this evolution? You know, are there many companies that are embracing this new mentality? Well, I think um, embracing is an interesting word. <laughs> uh, they're certainly caught up in it. Mm -hmm. uh, whether they like it and whether they have yet embraced it or whether indeed they have the skills, some companies have the skills and capabilities to embrace it, are all matters that are evolving. Because most people at senior management level have never had to deal with this. You know, people of my generation were brought up in a different world where it was relatively quiet and where you went to business school and all they taught you about was corporate finance and, and how to make more money and all this sort of stuff. But all that has changed. So I think business is caught up in it and we see it every day from, you know, you know maybe the most the most uh, stark illustration was how many businesses had to withdraw from Russia following the Ukraine invasion, you know, a geopolitical event that directly affected business. But, you know, lots of other things. What position do they take on abortion? Mm -hmm. What about diversity issues? Mm -hmm. uh, what about pay levels? You know, all these things, you know, what about offshoring or onshoring? What about sanctions? Um, against Iran? What about the the future of the supply chains of microchips, which are going to be politically determined? You know, all these things are now affecting business top to bottom. From where, from what, from very questioning of the multinational model to day-to-day -day operations as to whether you have gender-neutral bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, 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 so companies are 
affected by this top to bottom whether they've embraced it yet you know some of them have and some of them are struggling to and some of them are not you know because business is not monolithic so what companies stand as examples of ways that businesses can behave in this new model and i'm not going to say i'm not going to say should behave i'm going to say can behave because, yes uh, should would be a judgment call right <laughs> Exactly. Yes, yeah. I don't like the should idea. Um, so, so I think there are things that they cannot avoid. So, so they can't avoid having to address these issues. The question, I think, for businesses is how do you develop the skills base to address these issues? Um, as I mentioned, part of the political thought process is that everybody has a different worldview and everybody wants different things. So if you have an executive team and a board that are all out of the same cookie cutter, that all have the same political views, that all have the same views on what the business should be doing, what the business is for, then you're not going to get exposed to what politics really is, which is multiple conflicting views fighting it out. So, so you need that dive. You need to somehow to find a way to expose yourself, if I can use that term, to um, to different perspectives on life, different life views, and be able to develop approaches, operational policies, and public stances that take account of these multiple perspectives. That is the job that politicians do every day, but it's not a job that business people have been used to doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Do you see any companies standing as a good example of this? Well, yes. I mean, a number of companies have have done this. Uh, some companies have done this for a while. So some companies have not reacted to political issues. They've actually used political issues as a way of generating a competitive advantage. So let's take a company like Patagonia that was founded on the basis of environmental activism. That's a purely political issue. You know, its whole brand image is around being an environmentally activist company. And it's attracted a community of customers that believe in that. So that they have used a political issue as a way of brand building and creating competitive advantage in the marketplace. Now, that's very specific. And there are other companies like Benetton and some that have that dove into it, like, for instance, Nike, when they dove into the Black Lives Matter uh, issue and made that part of their marketing campaign. So these companies are not reacting. They're actually using political issues as part of their brand and part of building their competitive advantage. Most companies are not in that position. Most companies are finding they have to deal with political issues. So take a company like Unilever that, you know, is a highly politically sophisticated company and recently was you know, hit with an issue that their subsidiary, Ben & Jerry's, which itself is a politically directed brand, um, you know, didn't want to keep selling ice cream, distributing ice cream in the occupied West Banks of Israel. So that's a political issue that the company had to deal with, and it was difficult to deal with it, but they found a way. 
um, um, you know, you know, other companies have struggled because these are difficult things to try and to try and move forward. Um, but I think we can see that some companies are, you know, handling these things, um, you know, better as they get better at it and develop the skills to do so. What are the dangers of political capitalism? And the thing I'm thinking about is like in the United States, it feels like corporations control a lot of political decisions already. And I feel almost like as a as an individual constituent that I don't have a big as, as big of a voice. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what are the dangers of this of this new? Yes. Movement? So 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 the first thing I would say is dangers are no dangers. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the way we're moving. Um, I see it mainly as beneficial rather than as than as dangerous. Um, as you say, you know, corporations have money, they have influence, and they have exercised that influence for many, many years through lobbying um, and, and other forms of expenditure, you know, campaign contributions, et cetera, et cetera. But that's been largely in the shadows. I think the advantage of political capitalism is that it's bringing this all out in the open. Um, so, so you can, you know, it's very much more difficult now just to give $5 million to somebody on the hush and say, okay, let's, you know, let's do a deal in a smoke filled room. We now have NGOs, we have social media, we have much more transparency. And the more that companies get sucked into this political capitalism, uh, framework, the more their political positions and what they're doing on politically sensitive uh, or politically relevant issues is much more in the open than it was in the past. So I see mainly benefits rather than downsides mm -hmm. because of the greater transparency and the fact that there's no, that, that you know, the days of quiet deals in smoke-filled rooms and nobody knows about it are thankfully coming to an end. Okay. In, in the book's conclusion, you mentioned that as political capitalism evolves, business will become more political, but less partisan. What do you mean by that? And, and this is, again, the difference between politics and party politics. So, um, you know, traditionally in many countries, many businesses have kind of supported one political party or another, depending on whether they feel that one party or the other um, represents their viewpoints. Uh, so they they ended up being partisan. But that's not what being political means. What being political means to me, at least for a corporation, is that they have to take into account that their customers out there and society in general has multiple views and that their role is not necessarily to take one view or another, but to find a way to navigate how they move through, given that there are these conflicting views. You can no longer ignore the views of people you've labeled as being on the other side. Um, so I think that what will change is that corporations will learn not that they that their best interest and their reputation rests not on nailing their mask, mask to one particular color or another, but that their best way forward is to empathize with all viewpoints and to try and find a reasonable balance 
of how to move forward, giving that, given that there are things pulling them in opposite directions. Um, and I think if they do that, then that may also help with the, you know, somewhat um, unsavory political polarization that we're seeing. Okay. One last question for you. Other than reading your book, yes. how would you advise business leaders listening to this podcast to prepare for political capitalism? What management changes do they need to make? You mentioned before not being taught in business school anything about this, but you know what what management changes do C suites uh, boards need to make to survive and thrive in this? Yes. In this. Yes. So, so I think the first thing, as I mentioned in my book, is to accept that and, and and most business people understand it which is why they have so much difficulty with politics that the political way of thinking is fundamentally different to the business way of thinking but that's absolutely right and that both of those are legitimate so you know get out of the mindset of if only politics would keep out of our business you know because they these politicians don't know what the hell they're doing you know you need to get out of that mindset that business thinking is the only way of thinking um, so, and, and that's a big change for people because it's not part of how, of their self-image of how they think about themselves. So the first thing I think is to empathize with and learn, uh, how political thinking and the political way of being means. Um, the second thing is to accept, of course, that they are in this, we are moving to this stage of political capitalism and therefore change has to happen. And that in order to cope with it, as I mentioned earlier, you need multiple viewpoints. So is your board a monoculture? Is your executive team a monoculture? Does everybody agree with what the CEO says? Uh, because that's not a way to understand different perspectives. Um, again, it's a balance between efficiency and resilience. So, you know, people like everybody to be of the same mind because, you know, board agendas can be got through quickly. Everybody can agree quickly and it's highly efficient. But we all know that that doesn't give you resilience. So how much of, of that efficiency are you willing to give up to be more resilient and to be able to listen 